Get ready to step into scripture with Tina. Hey everyone, welcome to Step Into Scripture. My name is Tina Wilson. I'm a pastor's wife and a mom of seven. Alongside my husband, Matt, I've committed my life to serving King Jesus as a church planter, a Bible teacher, an author, and an advocate for all-in family ministry. I'm passionate about making Christ and His church famous and about helping people develop an open-ended commitment to reading the entire Word of God. That's what this podcast is designed to help you do, to see connections across books and testaments in God's Word so that you commit yourself to reading it. And in this season, season three, we are getting very practical, looking at a book that is filled with practical application that we find through poetry, the book Song of Solomon. We're doing a mini-series on marriage, and I'm thrilled that my friend and mentor Allison Harris has joined me for this. So Allison, if you don't mind, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hello, everybody. My name is Allison, and uh, I've been married to Jerry for 40 years. So yeah, you can stay in ministry 40 years, marry the same guy, and have a happy life. It is possible. (laughs) I have four kids. I have three uh, wonderful son-in-law and daughter-in-law, and I have the most five perfect grandchild children ever. Awesome. And Allison and Jerry do marriage retreats. They help Mm -hmm. couples walk out truths from God's Word in their own marriages. And so in today's episode, we are going to be dealing with Song of Solomon chapters 6 and 7, which describe enduring faithfulness in marriage. And so for this episode, I've asked a couple who is walking out a marriage with enduring faithfulness to join us, Brandon and Cindy. Would you guys introduce yourselves? My name is Cindy Wilson. Um, Brandon and I have been married for over 20 years. Um, That entire time we've been in ministry, the same um, as Jerry and Allison and Matt and Tina Um, and we have uh, walked many seasons of life uh, during that time but um, each one seems to be our favorite so are my favorite. I'm Brandon and I've been married to her and married to ministry for uh, over 20 years and I wouldn't say that all seasons have been my favorite season but But we definitely feel like this is this is the best season yet, and we felt that way for quite a few seasons now. So, so Brandon serves as our discipleship <clears throat> pastor here at Ecclesia. Cindy oversees student ministry, which is incredible because you are recently grandparents. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah. And we have beautiful. Our babies, our grandbabies, are like the greatest ever too. Yeah. Which yeah. is also a new yeah. a new best season. Yeah. A new best season. Yeah. yeah. This I love is it. this is brand new and I'm I'm freaking out a little bit because we're the same age yeah. and your grandparents. Yeah. yeah. You're which not far means okay. man. What was, what was it the old tombstone said, Where I now am, you soon shall be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's terrible. That's a tombstone. <laughs> that's the other part of that. Well, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's just recap real quick. All the things that brought us to where we are today, Song of Solomon chapter one, that was episode one in this season, we talked about dating and courtship, attraction, body image, spending time together, expressing affection for one another, and being aligned and like-minded about your future. These are all important things that we walk through in the dating phase of a relationship. If you're there, go back and listen to episode one. In episode two, we move to the engagement phase that we see depicted in this poem, chapters two and 
Season 3. There we looked at the importance of exclusivity of attraction. It's only you. You're the person I'm committing to for the rest of my life. Continuing to pace the relationship, which you have to do in dating also, because if you rush things in a relationship, you're going to come to a point where there's nowhere else to go but sin or marriage. So we've got to be mindful of that. We also looked at times in that season in the engagement space where we might need to hit pause. And as Solomon says, catch the foxes that threaten to ruin the vineyard. Get out the things that have the potential to mess up the marriage once you enter into that covenant. If there's still contact going on with exes, whatever could become a fox in your garden, you got to get it out. You got to build a fence. You got to check the perimeter, even for the long term. 20 years into it, still walk the perimeter, check the fence because foxes burrow and things that we get out find a way of trying to get back in. That's good. In Song of Solomon 3 through 5, that was episode 3, we looked at the wedding night and the consummation. That is the centerpiece of this book, the climactic center of the chiastic structure. Did you know that the climax of the chiasm is the sex? That's wow, bad sounding, isn't it? <laughs> but it's so good. But at that's the same like time. some actual like Hebrew structure Bible talk. Wow. And God did that. Well, so God created sex. So yeah, it's the best. And and even in the structure of the book, it's just all sexy talk. Wow. Yeah. Then in episode four, which we released last week, we had actually y'all's kids on here with us, Joel and Madison, a newlywed couple, because we talked about the beginning of marital conflict, right? Yeah. Because this couple in Song of Solomon has the wedding night, and. You know, he expresses his satisfaction with that. And the very next verse, they start having problems. So there is not a, an immediate happily ever after, after the wedding night. Now we've got to learn how to live together and learn how to fix our conflicts, resolve these things, and be intentional about putting the other person first. So that's where we've been in chapters 1 through 5 in this season. And now we're going to move into chapter six and seven. So the end of the last episode, we saw this chorus of friends who just keeps showing up in this book after the woman has um, put her husband off. He came and presented himself to her and she's like, I'm too tired. Mm. I'm already in bed. Uh Don't come at me that way. And then once she decided, okay, I am in the mood, he had left. He was just gone. So... She's out looking for him, can't find him, and this chorus of friends shows up and they say, hey, what's so great about him anyway? And then she starts unpacking. These are all the things that are great about him, and the lesson we learned from that is that when marital conflicts arise, we need to focus on the positive. We need to look at why this relationship means something. Why does he mean something? Not focus on the negative. And that's where we left off was her just saying all the good things about him. And now at the beginning of chapter 6, where we're going today, we see the friends chime in again. So Allison, you want to start us off here? So in verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, Where has your darling gone, your most beautiful of women? Uh, which way did your darling turn, so that we can help you find him? And then in 2, it goes on, My darling went down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to pasture his flocks in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I belong to the man I love, and he belongs to me. 
He pastures his flock among the lilies. So we read these verses and we see that this is, I'm going to go back again to the, what I referred to last week, which is the Hallmark movie. Okay. Yes. Jerry can't stand Hallmark movies, but if he wants to get on my good side, he knows he's going <laughs> to endure a Hallmark movie. So now we're, we're past the, the crisis of belief and now we're into she finds him and now it's getting ready to be the end of the story. Okay. And, um, He's gone down to his garden. Now, in that culture, uh, the garden was like, it's the right environment, it's the right time, it's the right place. I've set the scene. I've, I've, I've touched, yeah, I've touched all the bullets. Mm. You know, for somebody, it's, it's the bathtub with the candles. Other people's, it's the garden, whatever. This is what this is. And, uh, and I'm just going to say it. They probably have makeup sex in verse two. I mean, I can't tell you that that's for sure. But all things lead you to that way. So this is kind of cool. There's just two things in here that I wanted you guys to maybe commiserate with me on. Uh, number one is don't have a fight so that you can have makeup sex. I think I've been guilty of that. Yeah. A lot of people do. You just pick a fight. Mm-hmm. Sometimes. For the yeah. purpose of makeup sex. For the purpose of makeup sex. It is. <clears throat> it works in the moment. But after a while, the other person figures it out. They know they're getting played, and then it backfires. So I'll, I'll tell you this. If that works for you in your marriage, beware that it may work until it doesn't. Why and <laughs> So you can have me? You don't every, think makeup yep. sex is better sex than regular sex? I have, yes. <laughs> I don't understand. Like, why not just have happy sex? Because women make it complicated. Men, men are, you know, they're on task. Yeah. <laughs> women make it complicated. The second thing I would say, and this is what we say in our marriage retreats, is small course corrections. Okay? Like when you're driving a car and you've got the steering wheel. You're not doing this or you're going to end up in a ditch. Yeah. Do the small course corrections. And then that what, that's what helps you to be able to find him in the garden and not have it be this huge event. Huge events are great, but once you have huge event after huge event, they're not huge anymore. True. So, you know, small course correct. Well, maybe the makeup sex is the best sex because Matt and I don't fight a lot. Yeah, okay. Oh, no. Jerry and I because can if fight it were very how common. much gas is in the car. <laughs> <laughs> or lack thereof. <laughs> so, yeah, course correction, very important. That's good. We see this couple getting off track, and now they're getting back on track. He has gone back down to his garden where she was hoping for him to be. And this is something we've got to be intentional about in our marriages, because I think, unfortunately, some people don't want to heal. Some mm -hmm. people can, and, and maybe this is where mm -hmm. you're going with that, don't pick a fight just for the makeup sex. Some people become so conditioned to living in chaos yeah that they're not even looking for peace anymore. I was once friends with a woman who was constantly in turmoil with her husband. So every time I talked to her, she had something negative to say about him. Either he wasn't home enough or he didn't communicate clearly with her. He didn't ask her for her input on decisions that they were making. There was just always something. And those are all serious issues, so I don't want to make light of them. But I lost touch with her over time. But just in the past year... I have had two other women who are mutual friends of ours come to me and say, 
hey, I have this friend. They're speaking of the same woman. How should I counsel her? Because she has all these issues with her husband. He's never home. He doesn't consult her about decisions. They don't have good communication. And I'm thinking she is so freely sharing this with everyone she comes in contact with. You have to wonder, are you so conditioned to that turmoil that you don't want to make it better because it gets you attention. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Being trauma being a victim, trauma bonding gets you attention. Wow. Yeah, it's a mentality too. Like if you're if you're assuming we're not going to get along, then you find things and mm-hmm. find the faults that they're they're against you mm-hmm. on. So, yeah. Yeah, I think we have to be careful that we in our marriages especially, you don't want to do this in any relationship, but in our marriages that we don't become so addicted to the pity that we receive from our friends that we don't want to do the hard work of reconciliation. Yeah, We need to get in there and fix our marriages. I almost wonder how much of it was them being so young and so madly in love that they were like us, you know, 20-something years ago where we just didn't know how to communicate. Right. Oh, and, yeah. You know, communication can change everything, you know, and I guess even for Solomon, because when you're young and, and you're that passionate about something, you know, and you yeah. can't frame that into words with your spouse, you know, or the love of your life, you know, and it, it just makes you more furious. And yeah. Speaking as the, the only man sitting on this panel, you know, I, I can remember the early years of ministry or marriage uh, being furious over intimacy you know what I mean just feeling those and you can't say that I'm mad you can't you know you don't even want to show that you're mad because it felt selfish yeah and so the more I think the more uh, you learn to communicate over the years the more familiar you become with each other's love languages you know it kind of transitions yeah I agree so let's move now to uh, verses four through nine of chapter six and this is the man talking and again we don't know if this is Solomon himself or uh, a representation, or just uh, a guy, uh, but either way, it applies. You are as beautiful as Terza, my darling, and remember what Terza was. Terza was a city, so to him, you know, he she's as beautiful as that, as lovely as Jerusalem, there's another city, as majestic as troops with banners. So, I can, like, right here, if I were analyzing, I can stop saying, like, okay, I know your love languages. You're big into mm. big cities. You like big crowds. You like big banners. You like big, everything big. So, uh, chap- or verse 5, turn your eyes from me. They overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Gilead. I don't ever think I'm going to get over the whole flock of goats thing. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> But anyway, but this is what I love about verse 5 and 6. Here's 6. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Here's my favorite line. Not one of them is missing. (laughs) (laughs) Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Sixty queens there may be and eighty concubines and virgins beyond number. But my dove, the perfect one, is unique. The only daughter of her mother the favorite of the one who bore her, the young woman, the young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. So we don't know again who this is talking about, but what I love in verse five and six is she absolutely knows what turns him on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She is on it. And I'm telling you, ladies, 
it's a gift. It's a skill we're supposed to have. We've got to learn it, and we need to get an A in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it fluctuates as you get older. You yeah. know, what worked when you're 20 doesn't work when you're 40, and, uh, and definitely not when you're 60. So, but that's not the point. The point is figure out what works and make it work. So what works, yeah, find out what works, right? right. I remember when um, in our early marriage going, dude, this is long haul. I, this is for a long period what we did in the beginning to get each other's attention is not going to be there anymore because now he wakes up and sees me without my makeup on. He wakes up and sees <laughs> my hair is a mess. And I was like, I need to get his attention but keep it. And so I started spraying the sheets with a smell, a good smell. Mm. That, like, yeah, Lord so like you see it, like I started recognizing the things, the, the things that he liked and what irritated him. Because all of a sudden, I would see like when he was disgusted by something, it was like, oh, I need to stay clear of that, whatever it is. Um, but really, it was a process. I was like, okay. And I would watch to see what excited him or turned him on. And, and not just in the bedroom, but in life. Because sure. yeah. like all day long is, um, you know, building up to what's going to happen or what don't happen Mm -hmm. and it was like okay i'm going to get his attention but i'm going to keep it right yeah Yeah. in our marriage retreats we have a session that we call becoming your spouse's connoisseur and that's exactly what that is yeah yeah well this woman she's clearly mastered that because everything that allison just read at this point in their marriage sounds very much like the language that he used on their wedding night. So he's still seeing her the same way that he saw her there. And I think there's a great lesson in this. You know, they had this conflict that we saw on our last episode together. And then she goes back and she starts recounting what's great about him, focusing on all the positive things about him. And now he starts speaking to her the way that he spoke to her on their wedding night. Jesus kind of said the same thing to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He said, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So obviously Jesus is talking to a church here, but this is true for our marriages. If the love that you had at first is growing cold, stop. Remember what you did at first and go back and start doing those things. Now, something that's interesting here in the way that he praises her in this chapter, although a lot of the language is parallel to the language we saw on the wedding night, what's different is that he actually leaves out the more sexualized praise here. On the wedding night, he praised her from top to bottom. Here he stops with the face, and he doesn't actually go below that, but the conflict that we saw them have in their last in the last episode was that he's coming to her sexually and she's putting the paws on. She's not Mm -hmm. responding to him. So maybe here he's learning more about her. He's saying, okay, I need to let this woman know that I'm here for more than just sex. That's not the only thing that I'm appreciating about her. But either way, like like you're expressing, Cindy, they're learning more about one another. Mm She's learning what's going to keep his attention. He's learning what makes her mad. And they're both responding in kind. And that's the beauty of this, is that as love 
is growing, or not as love is growing, but love is growing because they're doing these things, because they are seeking to know and understand one another better, and they're responding in kind. Yeah. I think that happens in when, when you spend enough time together. You see beyond the beauty. And one of the things that he said was about her gaze when she was staring at him. He was like, I wish you'd look away, you know, yeah. because she can burn him to the ground with a stare, you know, and, and it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. Right. It's just like, wow, you see me, you know, and in ways that nobody else can. And I think that, that becoming aware of each other, learning each other, learning the hearts of one another, you know, something I tell Cindy all the time is, dude, you were so much more beautiful to me in this season of our marriage than you ever were, you know? And I really, I really mean that because, you know, I can remember what she looked like when we were young and we first met. And as a, as a mature woman, how much more beautiful she is and the way she sees herself and the way I see her are completely different, you know? Because I think I see in her eyes, you know, and I see uh, the person, I see her heart more than her her physical appearance you know which is also beautiful by the way but but i see so much more over the years and that's a kind of love that only develops with long-term faithfulness with everything we've seen play out in this book so far from the initial attraction to the rise in to the rise of conflict and the intentional resolution the intentional coming back together those are the things that are forging the kind of relationship that they are now at in this poem and what you're describing here that you have with Cindy after decades together. Mm-hmm. Which, which ironically is way more to manage than the early years was, but it's way easier, if yeah. that makes sense. You're, 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 you're balancing so many more variables mm-hmm. in the relationship, but you're natural at doing it at this point. Right. That's good. So let's keep going. Verse 10 here. Here are the friends, the chorus of friends. They jump in again. They always show up at just the right time. And they say, Who is this that appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession? So at the end of what Allison just read, where he was speaking about her and praising her, he said, that all the women bless her and praise her. They all hold her in high esteem, and now these women show that to be the case. They come in with this chorus praising her. And what's really interesting to me about this is that they actually say she is fair. Now, at the beginning of this, when we talked about body image, especially in the dating phase, she said, I'm dark. I don't meet the beauty standard of the day. I'm not light-skinned because my brothers made me work out in the field, so I'm not this standard of royalty uh, in my looks like Solomon is. But he said something different to her. He said, no, you are majestic. You remind me of Pharaoh's horses, right? Mm -hmm. And now the other women, in the way that they're praising her, they're calling her something that she's not. They're saying she's fair, and I think there's so much truth in this that her husband's praise and our husband's praise affects how other people see us. Absolutely. Every year on Mother's Day, my husband and my kids will say, what do you want for Mother's Day? And always I quote to them Proverbs 31, 28. It says, her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her. That really, to me, is worth more than any material gift that they can give me. 
I once read a John Maxwell quote, and this reminds me of it. It was, real success is when those closest to you love you and respect you the most. So there's no higher praise that I could be offered than the praise of the people in my own home, of my husband and my children. And that's an actual, really tangible gift because it affects how everyone else sees me. And there's such a lesson for us in that that we need to be sure that the way we're speaking of our spouses is praiseworthy and honorable because someone said at a conference that we were at in Nashville just a couple of weeks ago that dishonor is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that really stuck with me. Like when you are around people who dishonor you in their attitudes and their speech, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You become dishonorable. A pastor in this conference described how he was leading a staff and there was a staff member who was very dishonoring toward him. And he said, man, when I would go in to lead that meeting, I'd be stumbling all over myself, fumbling with my words. I I just couldn't do a good job because I knew that there was someone in the room who had disdain for me. But then the pastor said in the same way, honor is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you want to see someone act honorably, treat them honorably. And here we see this in this poem that Solomon, whoever this man is, has said, that dark woman is fair. And now all the other women around her are going, she's fair. She's bright, like the sun and the stars. And I wouldn't be surprised if she didn't lighten up, you know, because... (laughs) Think about it. I mean, you, you probably took her out of the fields when you married her. Yeah. You put her in the castle, you know, where this, yeah. that's now your queen. They were There was a, a professor, this was uh, late 90s, early 2000s. He took two apples, and he set them in his classroom with students. And he, he, had one, he had both of them up there for a couple weeks, 30 days, something like that. And so what he asked everybody in the classroom to do every day when you come in, he said, I want you to go speak just some nasty negative things to this apple. Mm. And he said, I want you to go to the other apple, and I want you to speak positive things to it. And at the end of, at the, end of the time, the test period, the apple that they spoke negative things into was very wilted. And it was just really bruised looking, and wow. it looked rotten. It looked bad. And the other one, ironically, based on the test results, still looked beautiful. And they said, as a matter of fact, compared to the other one, it looked just extremely beautiful. And so I, I, I feel like there's that self-fulfilling prophecy part. I feel like there's so much. I think that people actually change when we encourage them. I think they yeah, actually yeah. become something better when we pour into them and when we bless them with our adoration and with our words that way. Uh, I think the same thing could be seen even in my marriage where... You know, with Cindy, where I became more in touch with her emotions and her her mental health side of things, you know, and I actually started intending to build her up yeah. and build her self esteem and build her confidence and build her up spiritually. You know, that came that, that resulted because at one point in time, that wasn't my goal. I I didn't see the need for doing that. You know, yeah. it was kind of like how we we grew up. You know, our our parents raised us, and it was like, hey. You're good, and if you're not, we'll tell you you're not. You know, and and so, kind of breaking those cycles, which I'm sure Solomon or whoever this is had to break some cycles also, because one of the things we experience as married couples is we have to find out who we are. Yeah. And I'm not my dad, and she's not her mom, and so that self discovery period in in the middle of all that, you know, somewhere in that in that journey, I started realizing 
not only the value of who I was with, but the importance of letting them know how valuable they were. Yeah. And, and I believe with all my heart that I saw a transformation in her in doing some of those things. Yeah, definitely, without a doubt. Um, and there was, like, it's, I, I remember vividly when, like, our marriage kind of took a pivotal point where for a while we were more focused of our outward, not expressions, but the way we were being um, productive out in the world in the ministry. What the friends saw. What, yes. And then it was more like, wait, when our home is well, yeah. everybody else is blessed. And there was a point where I was like, um, when it was, you know, in our first early part of our marriage, um, when we were so worried about ministry that the ministry of our home was neglected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because we meant to, but it was because we just became so... Because you're human. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like your productivity yeah. is what yeah. you measured your, your value in. And it was like, dude, when we are good at home, the ministry thrives. But when we are so focused on ministry, our home is corroded. <laughs> Everybody pays for it. Uh, yeah, really. They would have <laughs> gas like, station attendants, yeah. ministry friends, everybody. <laughs> get out of my way. So it, it was definitely a point of we, and I don't think we agreed on it. It was like a mutual shift yeah. that just had to happen. Um, so, yeah, without a doubt. But over the years, communication has increased, you know. And so once you start identifying some of those things, you know, and, and the, uh, maybe they, 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 they appear in, a, in an argument or in a fight or something like that, you know, then somewhere down the road, you're like, hey, what, if, what would it look like if we just talk about what we're feeling? Yeah. You know, talk about what our needs are. Talk about what we're struggling with, you know. And um, I think it helps to, to, to understand each other's weaknesses and strengths as well, you know. So. Mm-hmm. When I understand where she's weak, I can I can feel those those spots in her life, you know. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Brandon. I love what you just said a few minutes ago. Both of you just said it. Uh, you said three simple words. I see you. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it just that encapsulates how God feels about us, about and how we should feel about each other. I see you, and that's how a woman can respect her husband, and a woman man then the husband loves his wife is that I see you you yes. know and and you just keep repeating that and then you say something else that kind of ties in with Romans 6 11 through 13 and it's 11 it says I went down to the grove of nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley to see if the vines had budded or pomegranates were in bloom before I realized it my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people and then the friends say, come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back, that we may gaze at you. And um, so I'm going to hold it right there. I love this ver- these 11 and 12. First off, uh, he's, in, he's, he's succeeding. He is professionally succeeding in 11. Yeah. Okay? Whatever it is he's doing for a living, it's working. Yeah. Okay? He feels good about himself. He feels really good about himself in verse 12. And that's great. I, I, have, I have had four boys, and I have taught thousands of preschoolers in my history. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing more amazing than watching a little boy always want to be Prince Charming. Yeah. Mm. Always. 
He wants to be king, and if he can't be king, he'll be Prince Charming. And it's just like in verse 12, he wants his royal chariots of my people. When a man is loved, he feels strong. Yeah. He feels like he can conquer anything. If he doesn't feel loved or he's insecure, he's not going to do that. So he's winning professionally, and he's winning personally, and he feels like Prince Charming. And in the midst of his win, as often happens in the midst of our winning season, here comes a distraction, right? So the friends, the chorus of friends are always right there, and they say, come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, that we may gaze on you. And the man goes, Mm. why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Mahanaim? I think this is a really funny exchange that happens here. So we've seen this repetitious language, new growth, vines budding, pomegranates in bloom. Things are going well. The relationship is fruitful. And the man is still enticing her, inviting her uh, with, with language that has been used sexually throughout this. Clearly, they're learning from their conflicts, their love is deepening, they're growing in love and devotion, but before she can respond to this outpouring of affection from him here, the friends interrupt. Mm. Hey, come back here. We want to look at you. So Shulamite, this is the only time the woman is given a name in this whole book. We see her, she does call the man Solomon at times, but this is the first time she, and the only time she's given a name, but it's not actually a name, it's more of a descriptor. Um, It means of Solomon, or a feminine form of the Hebrew word for Solomon. So what he's expressing is, she belongs to Solomon. She is mine, she is my wife. And so the friends want the woman of Solomon not to go and respond to his affection, but to come and be with them, which, like like Allison said, that's what you guys are speaking to, this yeah. idea of the demands outside of our home and the pressure to be more attentive to those demands than what's going on in our own home. And then he rebukes them. He says, why would you gaze at her as on the dance of Mahanaim? So Mahanaim, right. yeah, that... <laughs> That word means two camps. We actually unpacked that one in a season two episode called Man's Revenge versus God's Justice. We saw it in Genesis chapter 32 where Jacob is fleeing from his father-in-law Laban and he has this vision where he sees angels and he says um, there are two camps here. This place is called Mahanaim. So the word means two camps. And there's debate among scholars about what's actually meant by this passage. But What it seems is that this dance of Mahanaim is something that women would do to celebrate a military victory while the militia looked at them. This was pleasing to them to see this dance in celebration of their coming home to victory. And so he is going, why do you want to look at her dance? She is the Shulamite. That's why he calls her that. She is Solomon's. So the first and most obvious lesson here is that women, our bodies are for our husbands. Mm. We don't need to be um, dressing or dancing or presenting ourselves in any way that is intended to get other men to look on us. That's what he's saying to these people. Why do you want to look on her? She's the Shulamite. She's my wife. Right. 
So, so what I'm picturing here is social media times 10. Wow. And so, you know, as, as a husband, I don't, you know, I don't monitor uh, Cindy's Facebook page or Instagram or any of that kind of stuff. But let's be honest, you know, any man out there is going to say, I don't care if you've been married 30 years. When you see a beautiful picture of your wife online and then you see, uh, you know, Aquaman plus 199 others liked it, you're going to be like, who is Aquaman? You know what yeah. I mean? Like, you, <laughs> you're pulling these guys up. You know, you're like, now who is this guy? Why? You know, and so uh, you do. You see that sometimes. And you're like, that's that's my wife. You know, what what's your interest? Why are you liking her? Um, yes. Why are you liking her page, man? Why are you liking her pictures like that? And and I'm sure, you know, most of the time um, you find out it's some, some old man who's sweet as can be and probably prays for her and me both <clears throat> every morning, you know, but but still there's that there's that thing and, and I, I think even as a man, I think that sometimes that's that's good. Um, it's tackling fuel as Bobby Boucher would say, but <laughs> you know, it gives you that fire. You're like, man, you know, okay, so I found out this is a ninety year old man that liked her picture, but but it reminds me. Yeah. That I need to do a little peacocking myself, you know, and impress her again, you know, because she is beautiful. And I know that I'm smart enough to know that. And then, and I'm smart enough to realize, you know, just like him, uh, who are all these people looking at her? Yeah. You know? I yeah. need I need to remind myself, herself, and themselves that <laughs> she is mine, you know. And so I, I get that. You know, I think that probably today's strugglers are even worse with social media. You know, yeah. how many people are gazing at your wife and wanting to see her dance, you know? And so for her and you both to be respectful of those boundaries, you know, be careful what you put out there for the world to see because it, it could very well uh, become unhealthy really quick. So I like this. This makes it make sense. It's hard for us thousands of years later to understand exactly what is meant by why would you look on the Shulamites on the dance of Mahanaim? Mm-hmm. But a few thousand years ago, they'd have a hard time understanding Brandon saying, "Yeah, why would you like the picture yeah. of Mrs. Wilson on Instagram? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so good. And I think uh, if I understand, like he's speaking to the friends. Yeah. Right? yeah. So when you see your husband, def- not defend, but um, protect you or yeah. come to your defense, I mean, it really is, it helps you feel lovely or beautiful or whatever even if she was enjoying the praise from those women because you can't say i mean she probably did enjoy that flattery sure human nature yeah so the fact that he didn't just allow that to be what fueled her um confidence or inner um self-esteem that is so important for a man to know that his woman needs to hear yeah you're beautiful you need to know that you're valued and um, like a an award to them. Mm. So that is so important in a relationship. And I think that's his way of saying, you know, the next picture posted is going to have me in it with her. <laughs> well, yeah. and I think we need to just make sure that we say to Cindy right now, if after this episode your likes on social media drop dramatically <laughs> oh, that you man. shouldn't take it personally. <laughs> so, right? sorry, so sorry. It is not because people are liking you less. Yeah. Yeah. It's because they're fearing Brandon wow. more. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so good. So obviously no other man, no one else at all needs to be looking on the Shulamite in the way that only her husband should be looking on her. But also we can just say something here about the distraction that friends can be. We need friends. We want friends. 
but we don't need to allow their presence in our life to create discontent or discord in our marriages. We kind of talked about that earlier. You know, when we have marital problems, if we're constantly enjoying the attention we get from our friends by spilling that and speaking negatively of our spouses, I think that's a great example of how friends can create a space that they shouldn't in our marriages. Mm-hmm. Can I pipe in here just for a second? Um, we've talked to many couples married in their 20s who still want their girls' night out and guys' night out. Yeah. No problem. Totally get it. But And guys' night out is usually just guys' night out. But when a girl has a girls' night out, she usually gets dressed up. They usually got an agenda. That's fine. But when she's dressing up to catch versus dressing up to hang, mm-hmm. we got a problem. Mm-hmm. That's a very, very good point. We don't need to give our best to our friends. That's just the truth. Our best needs to be reserved for our man. If we look better on girls' night out than we look on date night, probably something we need to reevaluate. And, and you used a specific word there, dressed up to catch. Right. You know, I, to picture married women going out with women, you know, dressed up to catch, you know. So most guys, when, when they see a group of women out, it looks like a bunch of single girls. It you know? does. Yeah. And so if you're dressed for catch, I just pictured, you know, fish in there. <laughs> well, I, I think that... Play uh, on words, it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it makes it makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I think that we're in a society today, man, that one of the things that, that scares me the most about the society we live in is we're in a disposable generation. Yeah. You know, cars are not made to be rebuilt anymore. They're made to throw away and get a new one, you know. And so relationships, you see, are the same way. Yeah. And so I, I think... Uh, and it's scary, but I think that a large percentage of the world in today's time is in a relationship unless something better comes along. Mm-hmm. And so they're always kind of keeping the the bait in the water, if you will, you know, looking yeah. to catch. Um, me and me and Cindy, we, we never really did um, guys not out, girls not out. And and I, I really don't think it would have ever felt comfortable for me you know her going out on a girl's night out kind of situation i just i just pictured what hollywood has made that out to be in my mind you know i don't really know what it would look like in an application for our household because it don't sound like something that would have really been healthy for our marriage um and we've we've never done that you know i've done a go out with my brother or go out with family or something like that but there again she does the same thing you know sometimes it might be a, a church group or something but there's always a very specific agenda. Yeah. There's a reason. Well, I appreciate that you say that too, Brandon, because when I have done Girls' Night Out, I mean, quite honestly, it was to some degree forced. And and it was, you probably can relate to this, with an agenda of there are people who I care about, who I minister to, mm-hmm. and I don't want them to feel like I don't want time with them because I do, but I just want the most time with my spouse. Like, hey, what do you want to go out and do for fun? Go home and be with my family. So I'm glad that you point that out, Brandon, because if that's not your norm, I want people to know that's okay. That's okay if your favorite thing to do is go home with your man. 
it's definitely mine. Yeah, same. What's the, it's the point. I think it's the whole point of, you know, learning to communicate, learning the needs of each other and, and building a home. Yeah. You know, that home sometimes consists of children. Sometimes it don't. Sometimes people have, you know, animals instead of kids, you know. Uh, but, but either way, you, you create the life at home that you want to retreat to. That's where yes. you work to That's go back to, to every day, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and while we're on this earth... Uh, people look at us all the time and, and, and call us homebodies, but but I love being home. Yeah, I yeah. love my my home. It's not it's not great. There's always a, a hundred years worth of things to fix on it, you know, on, on the house we live in. But it's our home, and we love being there, and we love being there together. Actually, uh, two of our oldest kids are you know grown up and married and and moved on in life, and we encourage them all the time to move back home yeah. because. <laughs> That is just great for us, having our family and having each other together at home. Yeah. Let's finish this in chapter 7, Song of Solomon 7, 1 through 9. This is the man talking. And he says, How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, like two like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are like the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bat-Rambin. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Mm. It's very sexy talk in the Bible. He's got it, man. He is on it. (laughs) So something I think is cool about this is he's, again, praising her physical appearance. He's done this throughout the book. On the wedding night, he praised her from the top down. Now, in this enduring marriage, he praises her from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. Maybe she's doing the dance of Mahanaim for him here. I don't know. (laughs) But he has not lost the passion for his wife. He's continuing to notice all the things that he loves about her. And in this marriage walk of enduring faithfulness, you know, we we can start to have different kinds of body image issues than we saw her have in the beginning where, okay, I don't meet the beauty standard of the day. We can start saying, well, I've changed. I've aged. My body doesn't look like what it did then. But neither has, but neither does your spouse's. Yeah. Right. And I think that's something important wow. is that we're we're on this together, this long term faithfulness thing, and it doesn't need to be that we use the natural process of aging to check out from the passion. That is not what we're seeing in this couple. So I'm just picturing him he started with her sandals and her, her feet, you know. And you got to wonder, was she gazing into his eyes and making him look down, you know? And so he just he started there. Um but it, but I hear a lot of him building her up again, mm-hmm. and I hear a lot of that. And you know, it's funny, you know, that when when you start out as a young married couple, and and you're not sure of who you are as a married man, and I, I don't think that women are are confident in who they are as women either, as as we're married. 
and you you kind of take that path of self-discovery self-awareness and yourself and you also find out who your spouse is as they find out who they are and one of the things that you discover is you know with with men you know beauty and sexuality and all those things kind of tie in together and it becomes just a physical uh thing for for a lot of men and it becomes a cliche and a lot of times you read this and you you see that cliche overlay of just you know what men uh at the at the core of the primal you know need or question right there seek but with women and the more you discover about your spouse you the more you find that they have to be in an emotionally safe emotionally healthy place and they have yep. to feel good emotionally before they do feel beautiful or even sexual yeah. and so I, I think that you're seeing probably extensions of him learning to communicate and uh build her needs up emotionally so that he can be there and provide for her physically Yeah, in that sense. I, I, I think that um, it was like 10 or 15 years before I realized that, you know, if I wanted to have an amazing night with Cindy at home when we finally put the kids to bed and things like that, you know, one of the, one of the ways of doing that was making the space cool. Um, yeah. You know, because you, you picture, you know, like what Hollywood creates, you know, this passionate kissing and, you know, it didn't matter what's on the floor and just knock things off the counter and spill everything, <laughs> you know. And so you have this this false sense of what, you know, Hollywood put in your mind of what, you know, kissing and passion and all that looks like. And you, you think you have to live up to that and recreate that every time. And the messier the environment, the better. And then like 10, 15 years in, I realized that, while I'm trying to kiss her, she's thinking about how messy the environment yes. is. You know, she's like, <laughs> that's a great she, point. You know, she's telling me, she's like, I feel overwhelmed. This place is just such a mess. And so, you know, and, and it, you only have that conversation communicably a few times before I would start cleaning the space up before I tried to kiss her. You know, I was like, hey, let's make this place look a little better before she comes in, you know? Yeah. yeah. That is a great move. And I think that what what he's doing here is, you know, just kind of building her up. And I think you saw that theme uh, with the garden in several different times. Like he had everything perfect and he was kind of learning that if she was in that space with him and she felt good about that space, then she could also feel good yeah. within herself with him in that space. Well, I think, too. OK, so he, he's obvious. He's obviously captive by her beauty. So we're talking about the long haul in a relationship. I think it's so important to look back and know that more than likely his desires for her were her alone. Yeah. So I could, I want to assume that his um, love for her came out of growth with her and her body alone. Yes. He had no other ideas of what other women Ooh, that's good. would look like. Like, yeah. Boobs to him were hers. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not another woman's. Because he's not been impure in that way. That's and, pomegranates, ma'am. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> the, the pomegranates. Um, but, but really, so he didn't have a false idea of what a waist should look like except hers. Yeah. So keep pure in all areas of your relationship. You, you only have him to know. Right. Because of the, the youth. When we got married, we weren't sowing oats. Or like, yeah. we were... Our relationship was primal. That was the relationship to base our knowledge off of. Not that throwaway society of mm -hmm. relationship to relationship. We were growing together. So so he was so in love with what he had that there was nothing else to compare to because there was nothing else to compare to. Right. That's why it has to be wheat and barley and sheeps and goats. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
So here is a great lesson for the men in this, is that mm. all that stuff he just said, it worked. Because here's what she says back in verse 9 to 13. This will close out this chapter. May the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrance, and at our door is every delicacy, both old and new, that I have stored up for you, my beloved. So his praising her, she responds by continuing the intimacy, inviting him into more intimacy. And and the, I love how she ends this. I've stored up old and new things for you. Great lesson here is that in our marriages, there is no restriction on our intimacy unless, like we've read before on this season from Paul, it's mutually decided on for a period of time. But we need to be together. If we're apart, we need to be coming mm. back together. We need to be thrilled with our husband's desire for us. You know, I once had a lady say to me, my husband just wants it all the time. And I'm going, girl, that's great. That is great news. Don't reject that. Don't do like we saw this woman do in the last episode. Let him desire you. Let him look at you. Men are highly visual. He wants to see your body. Let him see your body. That body image stuff that calls us to want to recoil from that. Listen, he's with you because you are his standard, yeah. like Cindy said. So lean into that and stop with the excuses, right? I think that's that's a huge lesson here is don't let the friends distract you. Don't let the mess distract you. I'm wincing as I say it because I don't even know how to walk that out. But but lean into the intimacy. Yeah. Let, let it be yours instead of a societal norm of what everybody says is normal. And I think that's where, you know, social media or friends, you know, or uh, even, you know, just just basic television now, you know, it it really sets this standard of what relationships are and how they should be. And, and, And I feel like there's obviously an agenda with television anyway. So, you know, we started making dads out to be the joke back in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, dads have no respect, no authority in the house. And, and, and so I, th- I think that relationships were also targeted. Monogamous relationships, yeah. you know, were, were made to be comical or a joke or disastrous for the most yeah. part, you know. So, so having that norm in your life of saying this is what the standard is as per social media or television or Hollywood, you know, just for that, that example, that does not have to be my reality. Right. You know, my reality is I fell in love with a girl. And me and her can make the life that we want yeah. together, and so I think that that's where we need to be. And I, th- you know, if you're listening to this podcast, you know, it's not too late. Go home and have that conversation. You know, remember what you fell in love about, and remember, you know, like he said, how it, how it was in the beginning, and and just have fun together. Yeah. 
So these are keys to long-term faithfulness, and that's where we see this marriage going. The happily ever after didn't happen by accident. It didn't immediately follow the honeymoon, but it is occurring, and it's taken intentionality and commitment on both sides. So join us back next week, and we're going to close out Song of Solomon, read the last chapter, chapter 8, which has some really good lessons for us about how we need to be teaching everything we've learned here to the next generation, to our own children. So we'll see you then.